Welcome to season two of the Change the World podcast. This season, I'm going to be speaking not only with nonprofit founders, but with other nonprofit leaders, such as fundraising experts, communications executives, and board members. We'll be addressing some of the big issues facing Jewish nonprofits today and brainstorming ways that we can come together to address them. Thanks for joining. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us. I'm really excited to be here today with Jonah Halper, who is the founder and president of Altericity. Hi, Jonah. Hi, how you doing? Good. How are you? Well, thank you. Good. I'm really excited for this. So before we dive in, can you tell me a little bit about your background? Um, how did you get into the nonprofit world? It actually goes pretty far back. Uh, when After high school, I did one of those gap years in Israel. I went to yeshiva to study and be in Israel. And two things happened. One thing is I met my wife there, which, which was one thing that happened which changed the trajectory of things. And the other thing was I fell in love with Israel and it gave me a, a desire to want to work in the Jewish community. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what it meant to work in the Jewish, like make that a career, but I knew I wanted to do that professionally. So when I came back from Israel, my, from the moment I decided to go to college, and all my academic background and my professional experience was heading down the path of working for Jewish nonprofits. Okay, cool. So that led you to where you are today. So what is that? What do you do now? There's a couple of things that actually built up to where I am now. Okay, so, go for it. Yeah. So what happened was when I came back from Israel and I went to college, I got a degree in organizational communications. And I thought I was going to go into marketing. I thought I was going to do like some kind of marketing with Jewish nonprofits. I thought it was going to be my focus. And I got an internship at a Jewish federation doing marketing. And then I got engaged and I realized I need a paying job. I need to be able to, you know, <laughs> internship's I need to, not going to cut it, huh? It's not going to cut. I need, an internship is not, yeah, it's not going to cut it. So I went to a job fair for Jewish federations where Jewish federations, and for those, for those people who are watching from home who don't know what a Jewish federation is, a Jewish federation is a federated organization, which means that they raise money to support a variety of community Jewish institutions. So instead of you getting someone knocking on your door or 50,000 people knocking on your door for the Jewish Big Brother, Big Sister League, Jewish Family Services, JCC, Jewish Vocational Services, Jewish Addiction Services, blah, 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 you know, keep on going all, the, all down the alphabet, you get one solicitation and you're basically supporting all these beneficiary agencies, all these organizations. So most Jewish metropolitan communities and even small communities have a Jewish federation. There's like 150 or 160 across North America, and it's a big network. So I went for, I got my, I had my internship in a Jewish federation, and I decided to go to the job fair where people, federations from around the country, as well as young or new professionals coming into the business could go to this job fair and meet the different federations there. So I went to this uh, job fair, and I didn't know anything. Like I, I, I didn't have any background. I just went for these interviews looking for a job. And there were for all these jobs called campaign associates. And I thought like the only time I ever heard campaign used in a sentence was political campaign. So I'm like, okay, guess I'm, guess these are like politics or something like that with in the Jewish world. I didn't know. And I interview and they're asking me all these questions that I have no idea anything about. You know, you're you're at a, you're at an event and a donor is over on the side. What would you do in this situation? And I had no idea. And um, one federation exec, one director of development interviewed me and I went, went into the room from Baltimore and he was asking me like, what books I read? What are my hobbies? 
do I like WWF wrestling? Uh, <laughs> it, was on TV. Like, it was, it was, it was just like, we we're talking for like half an hour about nothing where I was just grilled by a bunch of other federations about what, what I would do and da, 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 all these scenarios. He was just like shooting the breeze with me. And I got a call back from Baltimore and Philly and a couple places, but the Baltimore Federation, which is where I had this uh, interesting exchange, they hired me. Um, and I found out that campaign means fundraising campaign. Or, uh, there you go. I was like, oh, fundraising. <laughs> what do I do now? I got to raise money. So when I took that job, I finally had the guts to ask my boss, like, what was that all about? Right. Because, you know, I was getting grilled. And here you're asking me, like, you're schmoozing me about nonsense. And he said, Jonah, you have a nice smile. You carry a good conversation. The rest you're going to learn on the job. Wow. I chose you. I hired you because you seem like the type of person who would be a good fundraiser and you're young, you're new, you're going to learn, you're going to learn how to do it. Federation of Baltimore happens to be a really good training federation. So without even realizing it, I set myself on a path of having some good bones and how to run a successful annual campaign, how to run an organization in general, what a good organization looks like, because I could model it after the places I was at. So my career really started and for close to a decade. I worked in the Jewish Federation system up and down the East Coast. And then in 2010, I basically made the decision to go out on my own. And uh, that decision was primarily made because I loved what I was doing. But I realized that like working as a nonprofit professional and trying to be a primary breadwinner or any breadwinner was a problem. Like I was starting to pay day school tuition. I'm like, that's a whole other I can of worms. I mean, yeah, I was like, how in the world am I going to be able to, yeah. How am I going to be able to raise, you know, raise a family with, you know, with this nonprofit salary. So I was like, can, how can I stay in this line of work, but yet like be a little bit more entrepreneurial. And with my wife really pushing me to do it in 2010, I opened up Altruicity, which is the logo behind me, which is- Love the name, by the way. Thank you. I appreciate Love that. It. Yeah. Awesome. So Altruicity is a fundraising strategy and project management firm. And that focus on project management didn't happen right away because when I started my firm, I was turning 30 years old. In 2010, I was a little kid. So why hire a consultant who's 30 years old when you can go hire a consultant who has 30 plus years of experience with a lot more gray hair, you know, a lot more wisdom to share. And here's this young kid. Why would you hire him? So I realized that my like unique selling proposition needed to be something that would play to the strengths of being young and hungry and somebody who was willing to be way more in the weeds than what we would call a traditional armchair consultant. So over the last 10 years, I've developed a company, which is what I'm doing now, which answering your question is I own a fundraising and strategy and project management firm for Jewish nonprofits. And we work with organizations typically with operating budgets between one and $10 million for their annual capital and endowment campaigns. Awesome. Just as like a, a quick sidebar, I think that it's something that we have to address. I mean, it's awesome that you open your own business and what you're doing is awesome. But the fact that you had to make a conscious choice to leave the nonprofit world because it just wasn't a feasible career path for you. I think that's something that is just really sad about the world in general, that you have to either choose between doing good for the world or doing good for your family. That's just I, like a, something that I, I really thought a lot about. So it's interesting that you bring that up, but you found a way to kind of straddle both because you're, you know, open your own business, but you're still using that business to do good. So that's, that's very cool. 
the other benefit of it is like when you work for one organization, you, you can, I mean, maybe it's just me, but I would get very bored doing the same campaign every year, the same dinner, the yeah. same tweaks here and there, but effectively you're running the same, the same experience year in, year out. And I was like, this, this is getting like, I would, I would get burned out after a couple of years because I, I wouldn't be doing anything exciting for me. So doing consulting or, or, or doing what the, the place where I'm sitting, I'm, I'm constantly introduced to new organizations, new challenges, new problems, new ways of doing business, and it keeps things fresh. And I become a better professional because of it, because I'm introduced to new challenges and seeing best practices done in different ways that I'm able to kind of, you know, sit in this kind of 20,000 foot view and really, you know, enhance yeah. myself as a, as a professional and bring it to my clients. And when you're working for one organization, you're really limited by the leadership there. I mean, you hope you're not limited by the leadership, but I think for all intents and purposes, that does come up, whereas things are generally done a certain way and there's a little wiggle room here and there, but you know, overall there is kind of limitation. So you're, you're giving yourself the chance to go beyond that. So yeah. tell me about your typical day in altricity. What, what is it when you're not recording a podcast, what, what kind of projects and clients are you working on? All our business is, is pretty much word of mouth, which means that when someone calls us, they're saying, hey, Jonah, um, I know you worked on this other campaign. I had a conversation with them. We are either one of, usually it's one of two things that they're coming to me for. They're either saying, right now we raise a million dollars a year. We have an operating budget of, let's say, $1.2 million, and we need to become a $3 million organization. So how do you, can you help us get from a million dollars to $3 million? So we will help them in a very in a retained model, really grow their organization for their annual campaign fundraising and make sure it leads to the growth of their organization so they can do more good, do what they do. And that, that's one type of client. The other type of client will call us and say, hey, Jonah, we run a good annual campaign, but we need to run a second line campaign, which is often a capital campaign. They'll say, you know, we need to go raise $10 million for a campus expansion. We need to raise $25 million for a brand new building. Whatever the, the campaign is, it's either something that they're not familiar with, with the process or how to do it well, and or they also feel like, oh my God, like I'm already up to here with my annual campaign. I need like booster rockets. I need, I need someone on the outside who can come and give us what we need in order that we can handle more because we can't, we already feel like we're up to our, our, our eyeballs in annual campaign fundraising. We need, we need that support. So most of our clients come in that way, which means that we work with 15, 20 retainer clients in a, in, at a given time. Um, some clients are shorter term, like six months to a year. And some of our clients, we have clients that we've had for five plus years. It just depends on the scope of the work, what work we're doing. And as long as we're relevant, as long as we're able to help them raise more money than what we're charging them, then and hopefully add enough, enough of a margin, then we stay working with them. Um, the biggest change I would say that we do that's a little bit different than, than just the retained work is the newly minted uh, uh, pipeline that we run. In other words, part of our things that we do with our clients on a regular basis is really two, two pieces. One is we're doing campaign strategy and project management. Like if you're a school and you want to you want to run a grandparents campaign, right? What does that campaign look like? Is it a branded like you know Nachas Society or Sharashim Society where grandparents can feel like they're part of something? What are the benefits for being part of it? What's the ask? What's the call to action? What are you asking for? When are you asking for it throughout the year? What are those touch points? What's the engagement? All that kind of stuff is the campaign itself. And then aside from bringing grandparents into it through a kind of a, a mass engagement uh, tool, then there's the actual like VIP prospects. So you might have 
15, 20 grandparents who could be giving more than the bare minimum to join the grandparent society, they should get their own pipeline. Like these are grandparents that we need to, to cultivate a relationship with and ultimately solicit them for bigger, bigger money. So we do weekly coaching and pipeline work for those that type of work. So with our annual campaign, we're doing both those pieces, the, the campaign itself and the pipeline. But more recently, with bringing on five new coaches, we're providing just that coaching pipeline experience for the clients instead of doing the whole the whole ring and roll they can just do the coach hey i've got a, a campaign a capital campaign or i've got a grandparents campaign we're running can you help us with our coaching pipeline piece of it and we work with clients through our wonderful coaches that we have on their pipeline and the return on investment is there because the coaching that they're getting and the and the soundboard that they have with the coach with real like tachlis, like what's the next step if we're engaging them in your given week, it's baked right into your schedule. Monday, I need to do these four things. On Tuesday, I need to do these five things. Coffee, introductions, uh, research on a particular person, whatever it is, it's baked into the schedule, like good habits. And that piece is, is a, a large part of what we're working on now with uh, clients coming in that way. So I would say it's really like retainer clients and the pipeline. Cool. And I'm, I'm curious about the project management that you mentioned. How does that look? Sure. So project management isn't something that's unique to nonprofit or, or fundraising. It's, it's basically managing projects, which means that every, every project you're working on has a variety of tasks. Every task has to be assigned to a single person and there has to be deadlines attached to it. So you have to have a, a sense of what the end looks like, what, define, what does success look like? How do you define the success of the project and work your way back to make sure that you have all the components needed to get there. So a campaign, a fundraising campaign is there's a gazillion things that you have to do that you have to make sure that happens. And the good ideas of the strategy don't fail because they're not good ideas. They fail because they're not properly implement, implemented. So okay. incorporating project management into the strategy is vital. It's not like it's not like a nice, it's not a nice to have, it's a need to have. It's the only way you can ensure that the good idea doesn't end up like put on the shelf and never, never, you know, execute or implement it or properly. So because of that. Everything that we do is um, we, it has that backend support. So the, the, there's a coach who's working with the client, but then we have a director of project management. We have a variety of tools that we use for project timelines, for the actual pipeline of donors to make sure that you could see what you need to do, when it needs to get done, who's responsible. There's tremendous transparency and accountability in that process. And because of that, the people who are involved in it, our clients who are involved in it, they feel incredibly empowered because they're not being micromanaged by their bosses. Their bosses can go on, on and see where we are in the process and where their staff is. They can see exactly how much fundraising is being done, um, how many meetings are being made, what, what touch points are happening. They can see all that stuff mapped out so that you can see that there's positive momentum. So the clients are happy just because they're enjoying their work more and the results are there because the only way you get someone to give for, go from a non-donor to a $10,000 donor is if you're putting in the, these important steps. So it's, it's coming out in the, in the campaign results, of course. Awesome. You mentioned tools. I want to go back to that for a second because I think there are a lot of people who might find that helpful. What would you say like the basic tools that a nonprofit organization must have in order for them to really be serious about growth? So let's say you said you work with clients a million to 10 million, someone who's at a million, what would you say like you have to be using these things? Well, every organization needs a CRM, a like a, a donor relationship, customer relationship management tool, like a database, a donor database. Excel is not going to cut it. You need to be able <laughs> or Google to, Sheets, also, Google Sheets, right? Because those, those those are static, right? If you want to be able to run a report that says 
who gave, you know, last year, but not this year from this zip code, you know, you want to be able to run reports that are, are strategic or, or, you know, who gave a thousand dollars or more this year with a 20% increase. I want to make thank you calls to people who made a big bump to the campaign. That's important to know your, your Excel spreadsheet is not going to be as helpful of a tool than if you're able to have a proper, you know, database to work, to work with. So a, a database is incredibly important. There are some communication tools that to me are now like, vital that might have been seen seen as something that was like oh it's a nice thing to have but for example tools like slack which creates uh, an opportunity for people to have conversations internally in a channel whether it's based on um, a project whether it's based on a client whatever it is you know getting that stuff off of email getting the back and forth off email but rather in kind of a back and forth in, in an instant message type of chat is much more focused and a much more clear way to communicate where you things are not getting lost and you're able to get the work done. So something like that is important. And of course, as project managers, we will always recommend using a project management tool. Now, I know a lot of people, if they were listening to this or watching this, they're probably going to roll their eyes at the premise of like, oh, we tried Trello, or we tried yeah. or we tried uh, Asana. Right? There's, I've tried there's, all of them. They tried them all, right? That's a very common refrain of, of yeah. people's experiences with project management tools. I can tell you definitively that it makes a difference which tool you're using. The reason why it's not working is because you're not incorporating the good habits that are required yeah. to use that tool. Any it's kind tool of like good. project management tools are kind of like therapy. It only works if you want it to, yeah. right? Exactly. You, have to, you have to be into it. You have to be- That being it. said, which one is your favorite? I'm curious. We use Asana or Asana. Asana, okay. Apparently, apparently I up. learned- I was like, apparently I learned that I mistrans mispronouncing asana, which is what I think a lot of people say. If you're a yogi, my wife does yoga, it's asana. Because asana, asana. Okay. asana means flow. Oh. So idea of project management is it's about flow. It's about which is a very calming name for a very not calm thing. Yeah. The idea is that the project management tool is supposed to make your life calm instead of giving like chaos and, and everything all over the place. But yeah, so we use that system. But again, like I, I don't own stock in, in any particular project <laughs> okay. management tool. It's just a matter of finding something that, you, that you're yeah. able to incorporate and get everyone on board. And it could be very, you know, it could be very rewarding. Awesome. Okay, so let's shift gears for a second because it sounds like you have a lot of experience and have worked with many nonprofits. What, what would you say is the greatest challenges that face nonprofits today? Like end of 2021, biggest problem that you're hearing over and over. And, and once you've identified that, what's your solution? So the, the biggest problem, which I don't think people are talking about or complaining about, which I think is without a question, one of the biggest problems in nonprofits, and it's not a Jewish nonprofit problem, it's a nonprofit problem, is the hemorrhaging of donors on the lower end. When you are running a campaign, you are always chasing after new money, right? And if you're viewing it like a company, right, the acquisition of any new customer is expensive, right? It takes a lot of work to get someone to become a donor, um, especially, at, you know, to get them to go up over time. It's, an, it's a major investment. However, what a lot of organizations do is they retain the donors at the top. Like they're doing, they do an okay job retaining the $5,000 donor, the middle up, middle tier donors and the major gift donors, but those lower donors, it is a constant revolving door. And that's a major, major problem. Uh, the statistics, and I have to look it up because I haven't seen it in a few years, but the Association of Fundraising Professionals like, has some crazy number that like uh, on the lower end, like out of 100 new donors, you lose like 91 of them. Wow. And that, that's, that's crazy. And they kind of constantly, okay, we're, 
Yeah, it's very, very high. The hemorrhaging is really, really bad. And that's a problem in general. Why? Because that what happens is an organization is now raising more money from less people. That's a, not a good business model. Raising more money from less people is a, is a recipe for a disaster. If you have a handful of customers, if your customer is Walmart and they, they represent a large portion of your business, if you, God forbid, lose Walmart, you're in deep trouble, right? So if you go lose a $100,000 donor, how many $18 donors do you need to go repl to replace that $100,000 donor? It's a big problem. So this, this problem exists not because like no one cares. It's because there are so many, and this is something that's been happening over the last decade or more. Anybody with $200 and an internet connection is able to start a nonprofit. So like the proliferation of, of nonprofits is enormous. There's so many organizations, they're all using the same tools and they're either cheap or free to compete with each other. And there's a tremendous amount of clutter and noise, which means that if you're a nonprofit, for you to stand out, you can't just say, we're the best nonprofit in cancer. Well, there's like seven or 10 other cancer organizations that are doing great work, right? <laughs> what, makes, what makes you better? It's like the fact that I can go into a, a Rite Aid or Dwayne Reed and see 40 different deodorants, right? They all smell good. They all last long. They all stop you from perspiring. Right? They, all do, they all do the job. So why, why Old Spice versus Dove versus another product? So this is a problem that the retail world had to address because it used to be you would have one, you know, two, one of everything. Maybe, two or maybe three products in a category and that was it, right? But now you have a gazillion options. So the retail world did a couple of things that were very smart. First of all, they, they have a bottom line. Nonprofits can say they're successful even if like they are, oh, we're successful, move those goalposts. We're still successful, still successful. <laughs> But if, but, if, but if you're a um, if you're a company and you're Old Spice, you need to you need to you know retain market share. And if you lose market share, your stockholders are not going to be happy. So one of the things that they figured out, which the nonprofit world is slowly adapting to, is the idea that one, they're not trying to appeal people based on the virtues of the product, smelling good, non-perspiring. You're not hearing that anymore. What they're trying to do is make an emotional a human connection, right? They're building so a brand, right? They're building a brand. They're putting a face on that brand. So it could be like the Old Spice guy. It could be the Geico Gecko, right? They're making it where you're going to make an emotional connection with that product. That's one. And number two is they've done, they've done a really good job of building permission, is to get you in the door with one way and then to slowly develop that relationship with you so that you become a real fan of that product. Now, in the nonprofit world, we're seeing that more. We're seeing more of an investment in the relationship, which is why we do what we do in our firm, because we're all about relationship-driven fundraising. Because if you've got 40,000 different organizations, if you're a cancer organization, who wins the, who gets the money? The one who can show the best pie chart and statistics, the data? No, it's the one who has the strongest relationship with the donor. You don't have to be best in class. You have to have the best relationship with the donor. So if you're looking at your fundraising from the perspective of how do I develop relationships in a systematic and a focused way, you're going to win every time. When the market crashed in 2008, people didn't stop giving. They just shored up their, their charity. They shored up their tzedakah to their priorities. Like, okay, these are my five, four favorite charities. I, it's such a bad time right now. I need to help them. I care about them so much. That's what happened. The ones who got the $1,000 or $50 or $100, 
gone, right? They stopped giving to those people. But the ones that were their babies, like their ones they cared about the most, they continued giving and sometimes even gave more. So every organization's focus should be, how do I make sure that we are one of those priority charities, that we can develop a relationship where when times are tough or at any, any point, the donor will be like, this is where I'm gonna give my money. This is my, my relationship is there. I love them. They, this is what I care about. I'm gonna to give to them. The data is important too, because it reinforces like their, you know, their decision to support you and maybe even give more over time. But the, the way you get people in the door is without a question, the relationship. So practically, what's, what's one tip someone can do today to kind of address that? All right, so obviously the, the, the part that most people will know is to focus on the relationships in the major gift fundraising or any, any particular audience. So you, you can't get to everybody. So being able to look and see who are the ones that are going to help you move the needle the most, which are predominantly the people who can give you the most money, right? So those people obviously are going to get the most attention from you. The real magic, and this addresses the lower end issue. If you want to develop a real relationship with a thousand people, how do you do that, right? Like I, I'm not going to call a thousand people. That's a complete waste of my time, especially if they're non-donors or very low donors. There are things you could do. For example, do quarterly conference calls. If you have people who give $18 or low end donors, Treat it still, you could treat them like an investor. Let them do a quarterly conference call where you can showcase the organization, what you're doing, get people who are beneficiaries, the people who have been supported by the organization, get some great stories on there, have the executive director or the, or the head of school, you know, talk to the audience, but let them know that every quarter on the first Monday of, you know, of every quarter of that month, you'll, you're gonna be doing one of these types of calls. It's a wonderful touch point, it's mass engagement, but it lets them feel like they're part of something. Even if you have 20 people who dial in the first time, I guarantee if you do it the second time, the third time and the fourth time, you're gonna build a, a, a base of people who are gonna dial in for those type of calls, especially if you make them interesting and entertaining. Maybe even get a celebrity, get some other type of you know guest, guest on there, make that a nice hook for your program. But the idea is you can do things that are engaging on a mass scale. It's just a matter of thinking like, how do I treat my donors like real partners? If you view your donors as an ATM machine, right? I'm gonna take, my, take the money and then I'm not gonna come back to you until next year, then you're gonna have that hemorrhaging. Your donor is gonna fall away. They're gonna go to give, give somewhere else. If your donor over the course of the year feels like, wow, not only did I give, but if I'm a monthly donor and I get a monthly email saying, thank you for your gift this month, let me tell you what your money is doing. The life cycle of a monthly donor like that is over five years, which is phenomenal and be a great thing. So whether you're a non-Jewish charity or a Jewish charity, this type of focus on the lower end, on retaining them, will not only get you a wider base of support on the low end, but it will also give you a good funnel to bring some of those people up into major gifts. Because any story, you talk to anyone who runs a nonprofit for a, a while, you know, if you ask them how this $100,000 donor, what was his first gift? Be like, oh my goodness, he gave $150. He came to an event once because someone took him by the arm and said, you should come with me. And that $150 donor, 10 years later, is now a $100,000 donor. That's right. But for some reason we forget that there's a process to get yep. that person to that level. So we need to build a stronger base and retain them so that we can move those relationships up over time. So you mentioned just now Jewish or not Jewish. In your experience, do you think that Jewish nonprofits face any more specific or deeper challenges than the general population? Or do you think it's the same just with a more specific application? 
I think that on that line of thinking, the biggest problem is that you're not talking about as big of a pool as a non-Jewish world. And so, for example, I'm friendly with Scott Harrison, who is the CEO of Charity Water. Sure. There you have over 50,000 monthly donors. All right. So I don't care what Jewish nonprofit you are. You're not getting 50,000 monthly donors because the, the market's not big enough for you to get that kind of support. The charity water is appealing to people, not just in North America, around the world. So they can get everybody. But the, the Jewish world, you're dealing with a smaller, a smaller pie. So you're not talking about the, the same scope and same scale as an organization that's able to appeal to the, the non-Jewish world, right? The Jewish population is a drop in the bucket. You're, you're, there's natural constraints there. But as far as best practices on, on and the same challenges and the same solutions, that's the same thing. You're just talking about a, a smaller scale to be able to do the same kind of work. Okay, cool. That, that, I like that answer. You're, you're serving a smaller audience too. So you don't need you know, 50, right. Meaning like there's pros and cons. Sometimes it's easier to reach a smaller audience when you're in the situation of your whole, the whole world is your target audience. That could also be a huge challenge. You need a lot of money for that. Okay, cool. What do you foresee as like the future of the next three to five years in the nonprofit world? And I'm adding the caveat of, I don't want to talk about NFTs. Because I can, I cannot wrap my head around that. And when it becomes applicable, hopefully I'll figure it out. But beyond NFTs, do you foresee anything changing? I think I would imagine, you know, COVID has really kind of shifted things and that will continue to shift. What do you see happening? So, I mean, there's certain underpinnings that I don't think will change. I think it's the human condition. What it takes to run a healthy organization, I don't think it's going to change. So, for example, a healthy organization needs a strong mission marketing, manpower, and money, right? Those are the four Peter factors. Drucker, right? Peter Drucker, right? So <laughs> Peter Drucker. So Peter Drucker, and he, he, he wrote that book in the 70s and he's been dead for 15, 20 years. I don't even know how long he's been gone for, but the premise uh, is still still sound. Even if the tools are changing, even if, right. the, if the technology is changing, that doesn't change. And the need for humans to feel value, to be to have self-worth, to feel connected to a community, a tribe, right? All that is not going to change. What's going to change is how that manifests. So when you talk about what does a donor engagement look like, uh, what does a developing relationship with donors look like? I think that the big pitfall to avoid, which we are, I think people are already trying to avoid, is to think that friends or connections that we have on social media are considered real friends or connections, right? Those are super superficial. Like if it's superficial, those are super, 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 because, because it's easy to hide behind your computer and think you're making a real difference in developing relationships, but you're really not. So it's, it's a, it's something to avoid because it's easy to fall into that trap. So the idea of saying with the advent of technology, how do we still make sure that we're developing authentic, real relationships? And then the exciting part, the other side of that coin is with the advent of certain things like virtual reality and the ability for people to feel like they're in the same room together, no matter where they are in the world, the ability to bring the mission, the impact of the organization or directly into your living room or directly in, you know, in front, onto your computer screen is incredible. So you like Zoom with Corona, the ability for you to do a virtual part, a virtual parlor meeting where you normally do it in someone's home, you would get like one representative from the organization to come and speak about the charity and whatever the, the entertainment is of that evening with the wine and the cheese and all that kind of good <laughs> stuff. But now that we're doing it on Zoom, I can get people to come from all over the world who are impacted by the mission. So if I'm doing, if I'm drilling wells in Africa, what stops me from getting someone from Africa to be on that live 
live event. So you're, you have the access, incredible access when things are online. So you just have to be mindful of making sure you're focused on the relationship and at the same time, find ways to make your mission immersive and engaging. Awesome. That, yeah. that is really cool. Somebody brought it. Was it you who brought up on LinkedIn virtual reality? Like the, that maybe that will become something a little bit more accessible. Cause like for something, something like wells in Africa, that's a super cool concept. Yeah. I mean, it's something, it's, yeah, you, yeah. It was your LinkedIn post about what, what does technology look like for the nonprofit space? And I, I threw out the, the idea of virtual reality. I don't like, like similar to you, like NFTs and Bitcoin and this stuff. Yeah, like, oh God. I, I understand stocks. I understand bonds. I don't understand Bitcoin. I don't understand no. NFT. The, the digital stuff, I don't understand. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist and it's not. Yeah, and it probably will eventually kind of become more tangible in a way, but right now it's just so like, I'm this, not. This, this back and forth between me and you about not understanding this is like probably going to be like the news anchors who are talking about this internet thing. Like, I don't really understand. <laughs> They'll we'll be watching this video in like 30 years from now. I'm like, oh my gosh, these guys had no yep. idea. I remember <laughs> when Instagram came out and I was like, I don't get the point. Like, why, why am I looking at pic? Like, I totally didn't get it. And then a few years later, I was like, oh, okay, I get it. Exactly. <laughs> so, so, I guess it takes time. Yeah. So, I mean, I, when I mentioned virtual reality, the one piece that I understood was the idea that you can be in one place and have an immersive experience in front of you. So if I can find a way to make you really feel my mission and what we're doing as an organization, and I can bring it right into your face in the goggles and make it an immersive experience, that could be really neat. That and is and cool. when someone experiences that, then it's not a matter of trying to tell them about the mission. You're showing yeah. them. Right? They're able so, to see it and feel it themselves. You even feel it because I know like, like, like they're now doing like technology that's letting you be able to touch. I think Mark Zuckerberg had gloves where he made it tactile, not just visual. So wow, who knows? So who knows? Yeah. So who knows where technology is going? But I think we just need to think in terms of what does it play into what we just know about the human condition? And are we giving people a, an immersive and engaging experience? Awesome. So before we sign off, is there like a really cool favorite story of yours that you can share? Because you know, in nonprofits are all about storytelling. So I'd love to hear if there's like something that sticks out in your mind, a client you worked with or a project. I would say, I mean, the, this, the, my favorite story that I repeat a lot is my first fundraising solicitation I ever did, because I really do think it was a formative moment for me to that kind of put me down the road of donor relationships. I started working for the Associated Jewish Community Federation of Baltimore, and my boss gave me a pledge card for this man, and he said, okay, go solicit him for the campaign, go give him a call. So I call up this phone number and I get his wife. Now in federations, sometimes some federations have a separate women's campaign, whether it's women run, the women programming. So the women are soliciting the women, the men are soliciting, soliciting the men. So I reached the wife and I, you know, I'm not going to solicit her because someone else is going to have a conversation with her. But I said, is your husband home? This is Jonah Halper from the federation. And she said, oh, Jonah, you do not want to speak to my husband. He's very upset at the federation. He's not going to give you a penny. I'm really sorry, but you really don't want to have a conversation with him. I said, oh, thank you so much. So I hang up the phone. I go back to my boss with the pledge card and I write a big fat zero in the spot that says what the pledge is, right? Right, zero. And I give it to him and my boss looks at it and goes, what happened? He, I said, well, I, I called and I got his wife and the wife said, husband's very upset at Federation. He's not going to give and therefore the zero. So my boss looks at it, gives the pledge card back to me and says, Jonah, 
go give him a call again and ask to meet with him so you can find out why he's upset at the Federation. And that was like a defining moment for me and right out the gate because it taught me that we treat our donors like partners. If your spouse is upset or your sibling's upset, you don't just like goodbye and that's it. You're like, what's going on? What's, what's the problem? So if a donor, someone who cared, and obviously they cared because they're upset. If they weren't, if they, if they didn't care, right, they wouldn't be upset. Right. So they, they, this person was upset. So he told me, go make a meeting with him and find out why he's upset. And that to me, it, it didn't make a difference what even happened at the end. Cause I don't, I don't even remember what the, the end result was of the solicitation, but just the idea that, that you treat your donor as a partner, not as an ATM machine is an important, important point because it's not just dialing for dollars. When you have board members or people who say, oh, I, I don't like to fundraise or I don't like to do solicitations. The reason most of the time that's the case is because they have this view in their mind, like it's dialing for dollars, right? It's like, hi, this is Jonah Halper from the Federation. Can you give $18? Thank you very much. Goodbye. Click. Hi, this is Jonah Halper from the Federation. Like that's the experience that they have. If I get on the phone with you, right? And I say, Sylvia, right now our organization is right here, point A. We need to get to point B. If you give $100 and 99 other people give $100, we can get from point A to point B, right? What am I doing? I'm, sell I'm selling you on this vision of the future and saying why you are needed to get us there. It's not a, it's not a shallow thing. It's not me like, oh, I know you're rich. Can you give money? It's, it's about the project. And I think that you have similar interests and similar priorities and similar values and that you want to see this happen too. And if that's the case, Let's do business together, right? Let's have that partnership. And, and the reason why I talk about it from a relationship perspective is that the unhealthy, really, the idea of me going to you and just asking you for, you know, money is like a superficial thing. If I just don't make it about the money, you'll say like, you're only interested in my, in my wallet. If I was, if I went over to you and said, hey, will you go out with me? And I don't know anything about you. You'd be like, you're just interested in my looks, right? It's superficial. It's nothing of substance. If I know you, or I think that something, you know, I, I know something about you, we have some kind of connection or relationship. And I say, would you be willing to go out with me? That's a different conversation. I'm no longer a creep. I'm someone who's, who's connected with you. In a Is there way. by any chance a book that someone could read about this topic? <laughs> I don't know if my uh, screen it's, is alone. Yeah, it's getting, um, it's getting eaten up, into uh, your background, but yes, Jonah uh, yes. has a book, Date Your Donors. Date Your Donors, How to Attract and Engage a New Generation of Philanthropists. Should I plug where you can, you can find yes, it? Yes, yes, and website? I can include it in the in the notes as well on when we right, post the podcast. I appreciate that. Um, it's at altruicity, A-L-T-R-U-I-C-I-T-Y.com. And you can see everything there, the company, the website, my speaking engagements, the the, uh, the book, the pipeline, everything, everything's there. Awesome, okay, that, I think that pretty much wraps it up. Jonah, thank you so much for doing it. This is awesome. I appreciate it. I appreciate the time. Thank you. All right. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Change the World podcast. If you have any feedback or comments, or if you are a nonprofit leader who is interested in learning more about how 14 Minds can help you, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me by email at sivia at 14minds.com. For more nonprofit content, follow me on LinkedIn or visit 14minds.com to subscribe to our mailing list.